Well, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for tuning in. Um, as promised, we are here with Dr. Reverend Bishop William Barber, uh, a true man of God who tells the truth wherever he goes, and we are just so blessed to have you, Dr. Barber. Um, I know that you've been you've been uh, activist for for truth forever, um, and and we appreciate that because one of the things that um, concerns me is my grandfather was a pastor too. That, and I could be wrong, but I, I don't see a lot of pastors that are committed to not just pre preaching the gospel, but telling the truth about what's going on in the world. Um, so I just, I'm, I'm just elated that you do, uh, you know, spread the gospel and tell the truth at the same time. So thank you for being here. And, um, so we're going to get right into, uh, I have a quick question. So I was looking at the news. Were you arrested yesterday? Um, yes. <laughs> yes. I, I thought I saw that. I mean, I know it's not the first time. No, no. Let's let's talk about let's talk about that because I know you were doing a, a protest. So I, I don't understand why they can arrest people for uh, trying to get voting rights. How does that work? Well, <laughs> first of all, let me just thank all of your listeners and thank you for what you do and uh, thank you for your opening comments. You know, the gospel is about telling the truth and Jesus started his ministry um, declaring that the spirit of the Lord was upon me to preach good news to the poor and recovery of sight to the blind, healing to the brokenhearted, uh, release to the captive, and um, the, declare the acceptable year of the Lord. And uh, But if you keep reading that text, uh, about three verses later, the Bible says they sought to arrest him and kill him. This was his first sermon. He had three years of preaching left. His first sermon, uh, they wanted to kill him because it was a challenge to Caesar and it was a challenge to the religious uh, cultists that had decided that they weren't going to care about the poor and the least of these and the broken and that they were going to be a part of the system of exploitation rather than a part of the system of deliverance. So I, I, how, did, how do you get arrested for fighting for voting rights. Well, it would seem strange, wouldn't it? Since voting rights is the 15th Amendment, says nobody has, no state can deny or bridge the right to vote. The 14th Amendment says equal protection under the law. But here we are uh, in a country where you can have an insurrection on January the 6th, violent insurrection, people get killed, and pretty much no arrest on that day. You could have a illegal march. And in that same year, we've been um, mobilizing on Mondays and different times in D.C. since July. Uh, I think I've been arrested 17 times in my lifetime for, for, for non-violent, non-violent civil disobedience. I never go to get arrested. There were 200 people arrested yesterday. We didn't go to get arrested. We went to exercise our First Amendment rights to stand in front of the White House and to say to the president, even as many of us support him, you have to fight this filibuster that is being used to block living wages and voting rights. You have to fight it stronger, Mr. President. You have to bring poor, low-wealth people and religious leaders to the Oval Office. You've talked to the, to the um, uh, 
um, corporate leaders, you've talked to the senators, you've talked to the House, talk to the people who you say you want to help and let us talk to America. And for that, when you step on a certain part, the officers give you three warnings. And we decided that it was our right to pray. It was our right to hold up signs for voting rights. It was our right to stand. That's that's um, public property. Uh, we paid for it. And when they asked us, would we leave or, or submit ourselves to arrest? We said, we can't leave because you, we, we believe we have a First Amendment right to do this. So if you arrest us, that's your decision. <laughs> but we are not going to move. And we're trying to arrest the attention of this nation because there's something really wrong when you can have this kind of insurrection, when you can have millions of people hit the streets when a white cop kills an African-American man, as they should for that unarmed. But far too many people are not moving out when our voting rights are under attack, when the people who are essential workers are being denied the, the wages they need, the, 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 the help they need, the health care they need, the democracy is the real coup d'etat is going on in these state houses where 400 bills have been put out to suppress the right to vote. And lastly, in a society where 700 people die a day, Dr. King, from poverty. Not, not, I'm talking about before COVID. So if I'm concerned about one person being shot by a racist cop, which we should be, that, that is gross, it is immoral, it is evil, then, then it seems to me we should have the same concern or more and, and the same tenacity and intensity about protesting in the streets when we have 700 people dying a day on top of the thousands that have died from COVID. When lastly, a study from Columbia University said last year, and, and this almost makes me cry because of the number of people that I've, I've, I, my family, church families had to bury. 60% of the people that died did not have to die if the White House had done the right thing. That That's the, my daughter's a public health PhD from Harvard. She, she studies this work all the time. And she says, Daddy, this did not have to be. This None of this had to exist. Oh, President Obama had laid out a whole group of folk to prepare us for how to deal with epidemic. All of that was thrown away. So 700,000 people died. And once one study says up to 60% of them did not have to die. And so we, we're standing up, we're marching in the streets. Uh, it's not um, uh, performance uh, um, activism. It is trying to shape and reshape the narrative and wake folk up to, we have to fight for this democracy with the weapons of love and truth and justice. And so, yeah, yesterday um, the um, park service came and 200 people, not just me, but 200 people were arrested yesterday. You imagine that in the nation's capital. And some news agency didn't even pick it up. 200 people got arrested yesterday. None on the January 6th. Right. And they were violent. <laughs> right. You know, and I saw it. It went by so fast, honestly. I was like, 
And then I was trying to find it on the internet. I said, was Reverend Barber arrested yesterday? I'm, I'm seriously, it was like two seconds. And then that's all I saw. And I'm steady trying to find it. I said, well, I'm going to ask him because that's what I saw. It was, it's crazy. And isn't that something? When people are, when the president is, you know, basically encouraging people to do be violent and they have a part and then they march down to the White House and they're beating and they're climbing like, like little monkeys up the, the media fixed on it. Media's right there. Won't they, nothing else matters, right? And and rightfully so. If people are being violent, you should tell the story. But then when black and white and brown and Latino and gay and straight and young and old come together peacefully, right? But but seriously, but, but and, and committed but peacefully and march through Black Lives Matter right, and march to the White House. Some of the media just oh they too peak. Now I guarantee you. I guarantee you, Dr. King, that if if I was there fighting, first of all, if I was there doing what they did on January 6th, you would be hearing about my death because you know goodness well, if that had been you and me, it wouldn't have had to be in the whole crowd, just you and me went up those stairs and tried to and burst out a window in the White House and had a bat trying to hit somebody. It could have just been Dr. King and Dr. Bob. We both would be Dr. Dead. <laughs> yeah, that's the truth. You are telling you are telling the truth. If and if we wasn't dead, we'd still be in jail. <laughs> yeah, oh Lord, yeah. And, and 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 probably maimed. And so I'm concerned about the nation and even the media because you know people can come together without the violence and the media just acts like it's nothing. But if it's sensational or something of that nature, and but we're not gonna quit. We're gonna push and push and push because we've got to change the narrative in this country. Well, I, I thank God for you. Um, and I know that uh, Reverend Sharpton, and I don't know all the ministers that are in there. And I, I think you all, I don't know if you went to um, Arby's uh, hearing or did that already happen? Or is that, when is well, that today? Was, my, this is what happened last week, a week, two weeks ago, I was invited by Barbara Arwan. She's the attorney with the Transformative Justice Network that's one of the ones that's been in the courtroom every day with the family, every single day. She's been there from day one once the young man was first killed, murdered. And uh, she said the family was interested in whether or not I could come down. And I told her, sure, if they would want to. So we went down, my team went down uh, two weeks ago now, I think it was. And our goal was just to go in the courtroom, sit with sit there and pray with the family. We had no other agenda. You know, we, we didn't we didn't do it. So when we got there, of course, we met on the courthouse and we, the kids ran over and people knew we prayed for them. And then I went up. They wouldn't let me in the courtroom uh, that particular day, even though folks wanted to give up their seats. So we said, OK, so we went in the auxiliary room and we watched. And then afterwards, I came out, met with uh, Marcus, the father of, of, of uh, 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 Ahmad. And uh, he told me about his son, and he and and so we he said let's do a press conference. So we went out to the press, and I talked about his son. Um, probably he said more than anybody had ever just talked about his son, because the truth of the matter is, Miss King, you know why his son was would go over there like that. He told his dad and mama that his dream was to build them a house, and he used to go run and look at houses to to look at the different floor plans because he wanted to build them one at some point. He was an electrician. And he wanted to give them grandchildren and he wanted to build them a home. 
That's so they killed this boy while he was jogging, dreaming. That's what he was doing. He wasn't hurting him, but he was dreaming. That's what he did all the time. But anyway, um, we talked about his son, talked about how you know uh the white supremacy, when it sees a black man, it sees something to fear, it sees a threat. And then we led a march at two o'clock to the mural that was been drawn, painted about him, black and white. The audience was probably 30% white. And we prayed together. And then I got in the car and left. Uh, on the way back to North Carolina, we're listening at the news. And it comes up that this, this attorney says he doesn't want any more black pastors in. So immediately mm -hmm. I, I recognized that he wasn't coming after me or Reverend Jesse or Al or any. He was trying to set up something. And what he was doing was connecting black to intimidation. See, he didn't say that. He said black pastors and intimidation, which is an old Southern trick, you know, that black men are brutes. They are animals. They are something to be feared, right? And so um, I was asked to come on a couple of news shows and talk about it. And I and they asked, well, are you offended? I said, no, I'm not offended. I, I know what he's doing. And we don't need to be offended person. This is about Ahmad. What we need to understand is in a strange way, he actually told a truth that America ought to hear, that all of this killing is rooted in fear. And, and when you put and, and the fear of blackness, whether you're a black pastor, a black woman, a black lawyer, if you're strong and you challenge racism, then you are feared. You are seen as a problem, something to be purged, destroyed, undermined. Uh, and I said, and that's what they saw with Ahmad when he was running, a black person jogging in the wrong way of fear and that's why they killed him and that's why they destroyed him so i didn't go down today uh, i have a personal family issue that we're dealing with i'm so i've, I've um, supporting the march and the things that are going on in the prayer i may go back later uh, talking to the family and some others to lead an interracial uh and multi-faith uh prayer service and and worship service maybe but you know dr king um I'm concerned about this lawyer, and I've talked to some attorneys, he knows he doesn't have a case, right? So when he does, he's trying to cloud the waters, he's trying to turn the tension, and he's trying to set up that if he loses, he can appeal to the Georgia State Supreme Court and appeal saying that the jury was intimidated and get another trial. That's what he's really after. And so as my advice has been to folk, don't play into it. Great that the pastors are going, pray, march, keep the focus. Every picture, though, every every flyer ought to have the picture of Ahmad up there, not us, Ahmad and his family. And we ought to remember the hero in this is Ahmad's mama. I don't care what any of us do. That woman refused. Because see, they they it they went through four DAs. They had to remove four DAs to find the get because she wouldn't quit. Because they told her that it was it was a legitimate shoot. They were protecting the killers. That mama, <laughs> you know, uh um, I don't know if you've heard the story. Um, um Dr. King had said that um um uh, there was a mother, and uh, I think Shirley Caesar told the story, and said that her son uh, 
didn't like the color her face because it was all scarred up. He was embarrassed. And one day um, she um, she asked him, why do you why do you dislike me so? And he said, Mama, your face is just so embarrassing. She said, I never told you, but let me tell you why my face is like this. You were in the house, and the house was on fire. And nobody would go in the house to rescue you. And they said there was no way. But you were my baby. And I put a towel over my face and ran through those flames. And I got you out. But the result was the scars. So I never told you that, son. My scars are the scars of love because I would not give up on you. And that's what that mama, the story really ought to be about Ahmad's mama and his daddy. But that mama said, you're not going to tell me. Uh, I'm not accepting this. And she kept on and kept on and kept on and kept on until finally they had to to, to, to do a grand jury and admit that this, uh, and take these guys to trial. That's, that's well, first of all, <laughs> I'm blown away uh, by the fact because I never heard the story where he was just going to look at houses to build his own house. I never heard that before. And I thank you for sharing that because everyone now knows that that's the truth because they're trying to make it look like. his His father told me, he said, my son went back to school to be an electrician. And he wanted to do two things. He said he would tell his mom and his dad. He said, all I want to do, I don't understand why you all can't have a house like other people. I want to build you a house. And he loved to go look at houses. And he wanted to give them a children. And his daddy said to me, and I told the people down there, I'll send you the clip of it. He said, um, they killed my son. I, I said, they, they killed him before he could build a house and before he could build a home. That's all he wanted to do. That was his whole dream in life. He wanted to build a house for them, and he wanted to build a home by giving them grandchildren. Oh, that That's that's painful, especially for me as a mother of a, a black a black young man and a daughter, but that that's, that's painful to hear. It really is. Um, and we definitely uh, are, are going to keep her in our prayer, but you know, uh, a black woman, a black mother that's determined, you already know. You already know. That's what black women in power look. We ain't no joke. <laughs> no. My mama. We're gonna we we gonna keep it, we're gonna keep it real and we're gonna get to the bottom of it. That's right. Every time my mother, um, when we were when we've been fighting, someday she'll call me. My mother's almost she's 87 years old. She worked for 50 years in the school system that she integrated. And I once asked her why she worked so long. She said, well, because when I came here, they didn't want me here. And they did everything to get me out of here. Now I'm going to stay till I want to leave. And she, she was called every word, every N-word. They, they lied on and said she embezzled. She didn't. Uh, they, were, they did everything they could because she was a strong black woman. She was the first black female to lead the high school as an as a, as a office manager in, the, in our county. But one day uh, I went home. And she was asking me how I was feeling. And I said, Mommy, you know, um, it's just, I said, it's crazy. I said, the stuff that you and my dad said, I was born August 30th, 1963, two days after the March on Washington. And my mother and my father made a decision after the March on Washington about how they would use their lives. And my daddy made a decision they would leave Indiana 
and come back to the South. My father's from the South, but they were in Indiana and pretty much Indiana had gone through desegregation and different kind of things. My father was on an upward track in the church. My mother was on an upward track in the government, but they decided to give that up to come back to the South uh, to help fight for desegregation of school and voting rights and things of that nature. So I didn't have a choice. They, they kind of put me in the movement and my mother, and you know, four days, uh, 15 days after I was born, 17 days after I was born, in the South, they were blowing up babies in Sunday school because that's when those four mm-hmm. girls were blown up. People forget that 17 days after the March on Washington, they blew up four girls in a church on Sunday morning and the Sunday school lesson was on forgiving your enemy, right? And then they killed the president in November. Mega Evers had been killed in June. Then in 64, you had Freedom Summer, you had Swanner, Chain and Goodman killed, all of this death. And my mother once told me, she said, you know, we sometimes sat around and said, what have we done? We brought our child into this world that's killing babies in Sunday school. And now we're headed back to the South. And so I was sharing with her one day, you know, the challenge that here we are again having to fight for voting rights. And my mother said, I thought we had won that matter. You know, we, we did that. Here we are fighting for more funding for uh, schools and, and fighting against the resegregation of public schools. You know, here we are uh, uh, fighting police brutality. My father in, in the 1940s, after serving in the Navy, had a sheriff put a gun to his face in Warren County and said, you think you're one of those uh, curly head ends and uppity because he was in Warrington County, Georgia, but he was writing about racism in the local paper, black paper. And, he, and, and, and so here we are. And so she said, you, and she kind of started crying, that little tear that black women cried, that one tear when you know they kind of halfway mad and halfway sad. And so, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. And so she said to me, you know, it's tough out here, but you better fight. I said, what? She said, you better fight. In other words, you don't have time. To, yes, we shouldn't be facing it, but since we are, then we have no option but to challenge it. And when you talk about the tenacity of the black woman, people often forget three quick things. When Before John Lewis and Martin King ever got to Selma, there was a group of black women that had been fighting against voter suppression and had laid the groundwork. Before Martin got came to Montgomery and Rosa Parks sat down, there were a group of women that had already planned and had already pushed because Rosa, if you think about it, Rosa Parks was arrested on Thursday. The boycott started on a Monday, which was um, December the 5th on Monday. And they put out something like 20,000 flyers about her arrest, uh, I think on Friday. Now, back then they didn't have Xerox machine. They had those memorograms. There's no way in the world those women could have rolled out that many flyers in that time. They they, (laughs) They already knew, right? And then when Dr. King spoke at the March on Washington, Mahalia Jackson was the singer she stood right in front of the mic, the podium, and she said that she, Dr. King, had given the first part of his speech, but he hadn't really let go. He hadn't really, you know, told the story. And she said, "Doc, tell him about the dream." 
And he didn't listen to her the first time. Then she said it again. Then she, the third time he listened. And that's when he started. Think about that. If Mahalia Jackson, this black woman, had not said that, we might have never heard that in that moment. My point being that the sheroes of our history can never be dismissed. And I tell for my mama is my fire. Now, my daddy was tenacious. He was a thinker. But my mother is the one that put fire in me and said, you know, if somebody does something wrong, you have an obligation, right? Both my parents were fighters, but my mother is the fire. <laughs> Mine too. Same thing. That is that. I, oh, I love, I, I love that story. But yeah, we have been fighting. I've, you know, um, I retired. First of all, I'm from North Carolina too. I'm in Greensboro right now. But oh, um, my yeah. grand, my grandfather pastored in Durham. He pastored a little church on on, on uh, Denfield Street. Reverend B. H. Parker still there. It's a Church of God in Christ, and uh, he pastored for seventy years. But uh, yeah, fighting is 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 in my blood. My mother only went to the tenth grade, but she was she was a beast when it came to activism. She she did activism from her wheelchair on a computer. So I didn't have any choice, just like you, but to be a fighter. And so they used to call me. They used to call me the Rosa Parks of the company that I won't even say the company I work for because I was always fighting them. I actually went in with with Reverend Jackson. Uh, on a fight. So th that's that's something that we have to do. We can never stop. And that's why when I saw you, I've seen you a couple of times in Greensboro at the NAACP and I've tried to get you, but you know, everything's about timing. So what you're doing, you you are, you are our modern, modern day Martin Luther King. I mean, really, you're all we got <laughs> to tell you the truth. So I just, you know, everything that you have, I share every March. And now that we actually partnered with you, when you go live, you'll be going live on our pages, which is a wow. blessing because wow. we're going to get the word out there. That's right. Well, you know, I came, I was thinking about what you said. Now, my, my mother played for the Church of God in Christ as well. My granddaddy was Church of God, holiness. I tell people I'm a mixture of Pentecostalism and Congregationalism uh, all, all over. But in a real sense, I do believe this is this is a, what we call a kairos moment. It is a, you know, in, in, in Greek, kairos is different from chronos because kairos is when the spirit breaks into history. This COVID that we have has laid bare for everybody to see the deep inequalities of our world. And not just from, I'm not talking about Democrat, Republican, I'm talking or, or left versus right, I'm talking about right versus wrong. And it and 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 in the midst of it, this country now has to make some serious decisions. Um I often quote uh, Isaiah chapter 10 where it says, Woe unto those who legislate evil and rob the poor of their rights and make women and children their prey, P-R-E-Y. Or that text in Ezekiel 22, when Ezekiel talks about how the power, uh, injustice is epidemic, and then God asks the question, who will stand in the gap so that I won't destroy the nation? And then later on in the, 50, in the 37th chapter of Ezekiel, it's the valley of dry bones that, that the hope comes out of it. The people who've been beat down, they become the hope. It's almost like Psalm 118, where it says the stone that the builders rejected. 
And I really believe that we're in a moment um, that the stones that the builders have rejected, the rejected of this country, have to lead the revival. Dr. King saw that in 68 and they shot him for it because he said, you've got to address three evils simultaneously. Racism. Uh, and by racism, he didn't mean somebody calling your name. He meant policy racism because um, uh, that's what racism really is. It's, it's policies of disparate treatment. And then he said, you have to address poverty and you have to address militarism. And he said the last night he was with us, um, people talk about, he said, I've been to the mountain. I looked over and I've seen the promised land. That was his ending. He, but in the, midst, in the middle of that sermon, he said, nothing would be more tragic than for us to turn back now. We have to give ourselves to this movement. And he knew that the great fear of the greedy in America, uh, those who live by the love of money, was for poor people of all different race, creeds, and color to come together, along with faith leaders, religious leaders. So now we're in the midst of COVID. But in the midst of COVID, it made us look at where we were even before COVID. Let me let me give your audience some numbers. And, 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 and I give these numbers, and I say to folk, if well, after you hear this, you believe that you can be apathetic, you don't have to be engaged, then I'm all right with that because if these numbers don't convince you that we've got to turn this country in another moral direction, that the that the very heart and soul of this democracy is, is threat, being threatened in this moment, then I don't know what else to say. So for instance, we go into COVID and before COVID ever hits, uh, we had started the Poor People's Campaign in 2018. But notice, Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. And we have 43 coordinating committees now across the country, made up of everybody, all different races, creeds, colors, religious backgrounds. And, um, um, but, but we did it because we did a study called The Souls of Poor Folk. And I want your folk to get it. All they, gotta, all they have to do is go to www.breachrepairers.org. Breach Repairs on the screen. It's on. It's growing across the screen uh, at the bottom. I see it. Okay. And if they go there, they can search for the souls of poor folk, or they can click on the poor people's campaign, please. But we did a study because we had been told, Dr. King, there are only 39 million poor people in the Okay, I think you froze. Okay, Dr. Barbara's screen is frozen. I'm not sure what's going on. Oh, okay, hey, that's right. There you go, you're back, okay. So they said 39 million. So we got some scholars together uh, and uh, they came back with a report and they said to me and my co-chair, Reverend Dr. Liz Bill Harris, uh, it's 140 million. And we said, what? And they said, in America today, 50 years after Dr. King was shot trying to lead the Poor People's Campaign, we have 140 million poor and low wealth people in this country. And we all kind of sat back and said, nobody's talking about this. 
And then they said, but let, let us show you something else. They said 66 million of those people are white. That's 30% of white people. 26 million are black. But the 26 million black represents 60.9% of black people. That means six out of every 10 black person that you see. Okay, how they look. They don't. They cannot afford a thousand dollar emergency. That's what what poor and low wealth mean. Then they said fifty two percent of our children are poor and low wealth. Forty three percent of the entire country is poor and low wealth, and it's all because of policy. It's not because folk are lazy. Because they then showed us there's not a county in this country where you can work a minimum wage job of seven twenty five and earn, afford a basic two bedroom apartment. And we haven't raised the minimum wage in 12 years. And Dr. King asked for a minimum wage of $2.63, which uh, 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 aggregated, I mean, which, which, which following inflation would be $15 today. And that if we had a $15 minimum wage, 40% of black folk would come out of poverty today, like instantly, and for 32 million Americans. Then they showed us that uh, uh, um, 87 million people in this country are uninsured or underinsured, and that we're the only country in the world of the 25 wealthiest countries that does not offer some form of universal health care. The only one. Then they said, wait a minute, let me show you something else. I said, well, wait a minute, you're showing us a lot. They said, well, we have to. They said, um, they said, uh, uh, a third of all poor people live in the South. And yet all of the senators in the South that, uh, that are Republicans, for instance, vote against living wages, vote against increasing the minimum wage, vote against health care. Then they said, now, we haven't told you that some people don't make 725 and somebody, one of the person would say, yes, they do. the government said you have to pay people uh, at least 725 $7.25. And they said, but inside of the rule, they put an uh, they put a uh, 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 an exemption. The exemption is restaurants and food services, so they only make two dollars and thirteen cents an hour today. Two dollars and thirteen cents an hour is all they have to be paid plus tips. Um, then they showed us that four million families get up every morning. And, can, and buy unleaded gas and can't buy unleaded water because of the way the lead is in the water. Then they showed us that uh, we spend 54 cents of every discretionary dollar in this country on the war economy and less than 16 cents on education and health care and living wages. And, and then they showed us that one one company, one company's contract for one year could fund insurance for everybody in the 14th state that denied uh, Medicaid expansion. And we all said, and you don't hear any of this being talked about on the news. It's as though it doesn't exist. And then the last thing we talked about was, and this is all in the study, um, that there's this, this theology called religious Christian nationalism, white evangelicalism. And basically it teaches that, that 
that if you're against a woman's right to choose, if you're against people because of their sexuality, if you're against, uh, if you're for tax cuts, and if you're for guns, then that's all that matters, and that proves that you're for God. You don't have to say anything. And so we launched Dr. King based on this, but we also had them to do another study. Can this be fixed? And they showed us in policy how every one of these problems could be fixed today by simply making the, the, the wealthy pay their fair share. 400 Americans today, 400, not four, four, 400, make an average of $97,000 an hour while people work for $725. And take, for instance, Elon Musk, that really wealthy guy, he says he owns, I don't know how many billions of dollars, or whatever it is, $7 billion. The average person working a 40-hour job, $40,000 a year job would have to work 7 million years to have as much wealth as Elon Musk. And what has happened is since Ronald Reagan, you, you, there's been this trickle-down theory. You pay to the top tree and it never trickled down. Well, the last thing we looked at was in terms of racism was the amount of money that's gone into prisons that hadn't gone into education and then that every politician that promotes racist voter suppression, every one of them, we looked at their record, also vote against living wages, also vote against health care. So the same people that vote to suppress the vote are the same people that block living wages and health care. And we, so we don't have, I was at the United Nations and the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Poverty said, Reverend Barber, this is this, this, he said, I'm not even a person of faith. I, I, don't, I don't necessarily believe in you know, But I'm here to tell you, we don't have a lack of resources. There's no problem with scarcity. We have all the resources in this world we need to fix this. We don't have a lack of ideas. He said, what we have a lack of is moral consciousness. He said, and if people of faith do not get with poor and low wealth people and shift the moral consciousness of this nation, then in a few years, we're going to have fit over 50% of the people in poverty and low wealth. And, you, and we cannot sustain uh, domestic tranquility when 50% of the people are facing poverty and low wealth knowing that it doesn't have to exist and it only exists because of policy. That's why the Poor People's Campaign exists. And that's why I say to your members, the Poor People's Campaign is not an organization. We don't ask anybody to leave the organization. It's a movement. And if you're interested in being a part of the movement, we want you to join up. And on June 18th, 2022, we're having a massive Poor People's Low Wage Workers Assembly and Moral March on Washington. We're going to, Dr. King wanted to do something that killed him, but we're coming not for a day, but for a declaration to declare that we know this nation is no longer going to ignore poor and lower people, religious leaders. We put out a third reconstruction blueprint for the healing of the nation. It's in Congress right now. It's got 30 signatures. It actually lays out, and they can get that on the website, all that needs to be done, that could be done, that could end poverty and low wealth from the bottom up. 
And we tell religious leaders, do not quote to us that Jesus said, the poor will be with you always, because you got to know the whole scripture. It comes out of Deuteronomy. He says, the Come poor, on, Bishop. He said, the poor will be with you always because you don't do this. If you stop doing this, the poor would be with you. And then I told a preacher that wanted to talk to me about Sodom and Gomorrah. I said, Ezekiel says Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed because she mistreated the poor. That's what the prophet said. So the church and people of faith, if anybody ought to be bombed by all of this unnecessary poverty and economic injustice, and is the people who claim to walk by faith. And you know, I, I was um because I, I watch a, a a lot of your stuff and you're not just like you say, you're not just for black people, you're for people and people want to just tie you to the black people. Mm -hmm. That's what they want to do. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that tell me said you're a black pastor. I said, No, I'm not. Now I'm black and I'm proud of it. I mean, I'm also, you know, I have uh, I'm part Tuscarora. My great great grandma was full blood, but I'm black, and I know I'm black when the cops stop me. Let's be clear. <laughs> but I didn't get the, the Holy Ghost didn't fall on me to make me a black pastor. The Holy Ghost came to feel me to be a pastor. I didn't get trained. I didn't get uh, degrees. They didn't, nowhere on my diploma does it say you have a doctoral degree only to serve people. When I was ordained the bishop, the bishop did not consecrate me. Just for black people, they consecrated me to be a bishop in the Lord's church. I've pastored for 30 some years, two churches. I've pastored one for over almost 30 years. We welcome all people and we have all people. You know, now, am I clear on racism? Sure, because the Bible requires me to challenge any system that goes against the image of God in people. Uh, but I'm not limited, and, and, and Dr. King wasn't limited, and others, when people try to do that to marginalize you, you know, but the truth is not black or white, it's the truth. And uh, sure, now, somebody, one person said, yeah, but you got to deal racist. And I said, I told you, in our movement, we, we say that these are the issues, systemic racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, the war economy, the false moral narrative of religious nationalism, the the uh, uh, and the uh, under uh, underfunding of our public education and our children's future. Everything we do, though, we disaggregate the numbers and we look at how it affects black people, how it affects white people, how it affects native people. I'm just as comfortable uh, going to the Apache Nation and being with my First Nation brothers and sisters in Arizona as I am up in eastern Kentucky in the hollows of the hills, Kentucky, as I am in the hood of, 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 of New York uh, or Greensboro uh, or rural America or urban America because the truth of the matter is, and there's a quote, Dr. King, I love it. It's a quote from 1965 at the end of the Selma to Montgomery March when Dr. King says, um, let me pull it up in my head, he says the fear of the of the Negro and white masses coming together and voting together and standing together and marching together scared the Southern aristocracy 
because they knew if black and white people ever came together and, and walked together and voted together, they could fundamentally shift the economic architecture of this nation. So I heard you say that yesterday. Yeah. Um, when you were, yeah, at the march, I, 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 you know, I, I listened and that, that, I was going to ask you to repeat it anyway. So you, you beat me to it. And that's a paraphrase of it. I tell people that, that if you, all you have read of Dr. King, it's the last part of the, I have a dream speech. You really haven't understood the radicalness. Uh, you ought to go and read, um, that speech on the on the on, from Selma to Montgomery to end. It was called. It, it actually the sermon he preached that day was part of what he was going to do at the march on Washington. But he did you know he didn't have the time. It was a different kind of speech because the one at the end of the Selma to Montgomery was like forty five minutes. But the title of it was um, uh, uh, something no longer uh, normalcy. Normalcy no longer. No more. In other words, we can't accept this anymore. And what he did was he went back to the 19th century when doing after slavery and after uh, at the end of the Civil War, poor and low wealth, the white people and black people came together and found out they had two things in common, their faith and the fact that both of them had been exploited by the slave masters for greed and money. And they came together and they started working all over the country in the South, and by 1870, they had changed all of the Southern Constitution. They had, they had, they even like in North Carolina, it was a black man named J.W. Hood and a white man named Samuels, and they were part of the North Carolina legislature. And by 1868, they had rewritten the North Carolina Constitution and guaranteed public education for all people. It was almost it was unheard of, but they came together across these racial lines. Uh, get criticized, Dr. King, for that. Sometimes people, and I've, I've had folk come to me, why don't you just do a black agenda? And I said, it is a black agenda in the Poor People campaign. And they said, no, no, we mean just for black people. And I said, but, so you don't want to care about, no, that, they can care about themselves and poor white folk vote against us anyway. And I said, well, actually, that's not true. The data suggests that poor white people, when they vote, tend to vote progressive. No, they don't. I know, I know. I said, well, let's look at the data. And a lot of times they won't look at the data. And I said, but even if that wasn't the case, you have to believe in the beloved community. You know, as a person of faith, I, I don't want to see anybody hurt or destroyed or undermined. I don't care who they are. And so that's what we're trying to do. And we welcome your listeners, your viewers to join us. And, and, and if they can't do anything else, uh, Join us, sign up for the newsletters, be supportive that way, come when you can. But please, 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 June 18th, 2022, it's not a day, it's a declaration. It's a coming out. And, on and they, also day, can send, they also can send money, right? Oh, well, yeah, you know. <laughs> if, we are, if they, if they want to be a part, they can certainly send some money to Repairs of the Breach, WW, and, and, and it will be used, Repairs of the Breach, and the Kairos Center are the sponsors of the campaign. That's how that works. And so, yes, with money, uh, they could join a coordinating committee. Uh, what we're trying to do is make sure that every coordinating committee in this country has at least 30,000 people on their social media connection. 
So what that would give us is a million people, you know, just. So we're we're on it now, right? We're we're part now, right? Yes, yes. I, I'm sure they signed. Yeah, and I'll make sure. Yeah, well, I I asked to be part of it. Yeah, we definitely want to. Uh, Bishop, you said something really that that uh, resonated with me. Is so same thing with Black Women in Power. We really we really do embrace all women. Some woman asked me, why can't I change it to all women empowered? I said, because that's not the vision God gave me. He gave right. me black women empowered. But that doesn't mean that we only cater to black women. We embrace women from all over and men, as a matter of fact. But the name is not changing. <laughs> that's who we are. Sure. And that's your organizational name. But what people need to look at, take for instance, if you address let's just say women in power, black women in poverty, which is which is high. And you call for policy shifts that's going to help them. Guess what it's going to do? It's going to help all women. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 did, in some ways, did more to help white women than it did to help black folk in general because it opened up. You wouldn't have women's sports. You wouldn't have anti-discrimination. All of that grew out of the civil rights of 64. In the civil rights, in the voting rights act of 65, white women couldn't sit on juries until the voting rights act of 65 was passed. Fair housing law, 1968. Before then, you could discriminate based on sex, based on a, a person's gender. It's the, it's, the, it's the Fair Housing Act of 1968 that was won after the death of Dr. King. They gave you federal protection. So that's why we say in the Poor People's Campaign, since we're not an organization, the organization is the repairs of the breach and the Cairo Center. But if you want to be a part of the movement, then your organization, whether you're Black Women Empowerment or whether you're Women Empowerment or whatever, as long as you agree that we got to address systemic racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, denial of health care, underfunding of our children's future, and the and the war economy, and this false modern narrative of religious nationalism. We call them the interlocking injustices. And if, if you're with that, they come on in the fold. Well, uh, and I believe you, you're going to blow up. Uh, one other thing is, um, same thing with affirmative action. See, I'm I'm old school. I'm I'm quite a bit older than you, but uh, <laughs> remember, <laughs> remember uh, affirmative action. They used to say it was a black thing, and it was more it was more white people getting contracts and yeah. uh, everything, women getting promoted and all of that. You remember that? You I don't know if you remember that because you're a little young, but <laughs> you probably read about I it. it. <laughs> but I but I do remember. In fact, I remember when when when. One of the things that happened is a lot of some white men started putting their businesses in the name of their wives. And they then sure they, did. Call, they call it women and people of color contracts and initiatives. They did. Right? Right. And what we've always called for, see, this is the unique thing about, and, and you know, uh, uh, my life being framed in the midst of the liberate the civil rights movement, my father and others, um, you know, Black people, for the most part, have never asked for justice for us alone. Like, we've never wanted justice for us and nobody else. We've just wanted the society to be fair and just for everyone. 
Uh, you take, for instance, this voting rights piece. For years upon years, the, especially in the South, and I'm sure other places, we know that voting was rigged by white supremacists. When people talk about voter voter fraud, I said they're only talking about what they used to do, <laughs> you know, because we couldn't vote, so we didn't have anything to do with that. But not one black person has ever stood up and challenged a white person's right to vote. Think about that. We're the ones that right. we're the ones that have always been been uh, denied or tips to deny. But when we get power, there's never been a black person of power. That has that I know of that has stood in a Congress or a state general assembly and said, "I want to pass this voter this voter ID law because I'm sure that white people are cheating." <laughs> Never. We want we want more opportunities to vote, and we're the one. If anybody should be screaming about having been disenfranchised and cheated, it should be us. But instead, what we've always said is, we just want the system to be fair. That's all. Just fair. And I think you make an important part. It's important for us to make that distinction. Um, because right now, you know, I said the other day about that lawyer talking about black pastors and intimidation. It's amazing how you can say my organization is black women empowerment and automatically some people start think, fearing it, thinking, oh, what is she up to? You, you haven't done one thing to say, but say, we're going to empower black women. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What is she really up to? This is something to be feared. And that's, at the end of the day, part of the great problem of this society is the way in which blackness itself is feared. You know, blackness itself is feared. Uh, and we have to challenge it and all. But, you know, I, I grew up, I was president of the NAACP. Uh, I know. State president. And, and, and so I had somebody to tell me, well, how do you be a part of the NAACP and just be up and then... Um, uh, uh, the Ben Work with the Poor People's Campaign because in the NAACP just for black people, I said, have you ever read the mission statement of the NAACP? It talks about equality for all. I said, oh, and by the way, you do know that the founding members of the NAACP were majority white. What? Yeah. The first few chairpersons were all white. Started out with a white woman named Mary Wright Overton. She was a social worker. And and yet she was she was a crusader against racism. My what I'm looking for, Dr. King, in this moment, and um, I often quote uh, something Thurgood Marshall said. When Thurgood Marshall was um, leaving the Supreme Court, I think it was the L.A. Times, they asked him. Uh, should a black person replace you on the Supreme Court? And Thurgood Marshall said, not necessarily. And they were shocked. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, hold it. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Mr. Marshall. Are you saying that black should not be considered? He said, I didn't say that. You asked me, should a black person necessarily, just because of their blackness, replace me on the Supreme Court? And he said, not necessarily, because my first question of anybody that's going to replace me is what is their judicial philosophy? Where do they stand on 
equal protection under the law. Where do they stand on the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, the 19th Amendment? Where do they stand on those things? Because if they're black, Clarence Thomas, but they don't stand for <laughs> the issue on, of justice, then no, I don't want them there just because just, just their skin color is black. He says, surely we ought to look at that we should want to have diversity on the court. But if I've got, in other words, if, but he's, he was saying, if I have to choose between a black person who's anti-addressing racism, who's anti-women, who's anti-justice, who's anti-equality, uh, then I'd rather have a white person that's, 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 that's for those things than a black person that's not. And then he said, because he had learned that a black snake can bite you just like a white one. All right. That's true for you right there, right? It, and, it and so really is. My point in life, I'm looking for people, regardless of your color, who recognize that these six or seven interlocking injustices are not just threats to the next election, are not just threats to the Democratic Party, but threats to humanity itself. You know, I was recently at the Vatican at the invitation of the Vatican and, and, and the Pope, and I was there for a, a, a gathering of people where the Pope has written an encyclical talking about how dangerous continuing poverty that 1% of the world you know, can own more and control more than, than 50, 60% of the world have more money than they could ever spend. And he calls it sin. He said it's a sin and it is a scandal. And I was sitting in the room with white philosophers and black philosophers and, 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 and economists and all that all agreed that if we don't get a handle on the great disparities in this world, it will ultimately be the world's undoing. And so when I sat in that room, I didn't, I, I, I reckon I'm not colorblind. I, you know, I, I don't like to say I'm colorblind. You know goodness where you can see my color. And I want you to see it. I don't, I want you to, this is how God made me. I don't want you to act like part of me is invisible. But what I want to be in the room also with is people who in their, in their heart and in their everyday life are committed to the work of justice for all people. Amen. And let me ask you, I know we've been on it for a while and people are, some, I think somebody's typing their address, but it's already streaming across the bottom. If you didn't get it, it's uh, someone's typing it in for us, but we thank you, whoever it is. It's typing, I think it's repairs of the breaches on, so they're they're typing it. Um, Mansion and Cinnamon. Uh-oh. I had to do it. I had to do it. You see, we're going to go off on preaching the meddling now. Go ahead. On. Talk about it. I, I mean, which... <laughs> We can't get anywhere. I mean, what? Well, help me out. I, I, I just don't. I don't understand. I mean, I do understand it, but help me out. Help the audience out. Well, three things. Number one, the good thing about Mansion and Cinema and McConnell, if there's a good thing, is we found out that Trump wasn't the only problem. And I, I was trying to tell people that people aren't blaming it all on Trump. No, Trump is the creation of 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 the times. He 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 not he he. Nell Painter, the historian at, at, at Princeton University, Trump is the iconography of a too often repeated American reality. That Trump is 
America. Now he's not all of America. There's other parts of America, but he didn't. He's not something that just dropped out of the sky. Trump is using and used a philosophy, a political theory that is as old as the deconstructionists of the 19th century. Uh, uh, Richard Nixon uh, uh, developed it. Ronald Reagan promoted it. George Bush and George Bush too enabled it. And, and Trump has charismatized it and financed it. And, and, and he's got a lot of money behind him. Don't you ever forget 70 some million people voted for him. So if you think Trump is crazy, then you gotta say, well, what, <laughs> you know, 73 million people voted for what he was offering. Uh, and, he, and one thing about it, he didn't hide what he was offering. So people thought we'd just get him out of office, but we found out that he had a Congress that was enabling him. He had, People that uh, money that's enabling, he, he, you know, so that's number one. Number two, this filibuster that was that was first brought into being in 1806 to stop changes to slave codes. And the filibuster has been used to try to block every progressive idea that's ever come from, from, from ending slavery to, to women's suffrage, to labor laws, to consumer protection, the filibuster, uh, it's not a constitutional thing. It's not in the Constitution. It was put in place to allow a minority of people to run tyranny over the majority. It was put in its place to keep us from being able to move forward. In fact, the word filibuster actually means piracy. Piracy. One of the definitions is piracy. So Manchin and Cinema are empowered by that filibuster. And they're supposed to be Democrats. During the election, none of them, neither one of them said they would be doing this because they wouldn't have gotten out of the primary. If they had told their voters, I'm going to be against living wages, I'm going to be against the president's plan, I'm going to be against this, they would, so they're liars. And then they're hiding behind what I call a coward filibuster because the old filibuster, you had to defend it on the floor. That's the one that Robert Byrd and Strom Thurmond, you, this one you don't. And Robert Byrd and Strom Thurmond, even though I have a lot of disagreement with them, they were right. They didn't like this kind of filibuster. They believed you had defended on the floor. And the fact is that that Cinema and Manchin are doing it. Now, you ask the question, why would somebody, as much poverty as there is in Arizona, and as much poverty as there is in West Virginia, and in fact, West Virginia is, 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 is hardly any mm. black there, so he's hurting his own people. Why would you? Why is he not championing Build Back Better? Why is he not championing voting rights? Why is he not championing championing uh, uh, even more money for infrastructure and more money for living wages? You can't answer that question unless you can sing the song that was sung in the sixties. Money, 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 money. <laughs> money. <laughs> you have to ask, you have to know that song and said that, that for that kind of money, they'll even sell their mother. You have to know what Jesus said, the love of money right. is the root of all evil. And then you have to trace the Manchin family and follow the money. The Chamber, U.S. Chamber of Commerce applauds him every time he black blocks voting rights and blocks living wages. He's doing the bidding of other people. He's so trapped in money. People in West Virginia will tell you that. That's why he's riding around in a Maserati while over mm -hmm. 
40 percent of his family his, his people in his state can't afford holiday eat it's the second poorest state in the country he's not really a democrat he's not a moderate he's a money mansion that's what he is he's a money mansion you know he that's he's all into the money all in for himself that's all he cares about He's smooth, he's slick, he can he can talk like he can says. He said the other day he was at the grocery store and some grocery store person told him they didn't want Bill Back better, they didn't want to. And I'm like, nobody told him that in a grocery store. Uh cinema, she's all over the place. One minute she's been on the with one group, she's over here. But again, trace that money. And the money in politics, the lewd pornographic sums of money in politics. And the filibuster, which is an outdated, never should have been implemented, unconstitutional law, unconstitutional practice, uh, literally hindering this democracy. And then the last thing is, the Democrats and the president, they must come at them hard. Everybody says they might leave the party. Well, let them leave. And as long as Nancy Pelosi is there right now, and she can hold the House because they still couldn't move any bills. But you cannot let this stand. We said yesterday to the president, you have to fight this. And, and the way you fight it, though, is not by going after Manchin. The way you have to beat a Manchin and a cinema is you have to go to their states and, and, and lift up the people in their states that are being hurt by their policy. You have to put people in front of it. It's not so that the issue is not Biden versus Manchin. It's Manchin versus his own people, his mansion versus the people in his own state, the miners in his state that need the Build Back Better plan, that need living wages, that need health care. And if you do that, then that's the only thing that can push him away from the money. But as long as you only talk to him about money, three trillion versus one trillion, you're not going to win that. You have to get, go at his heart, go at his conscience. And if he doesn't, and if he doesn't have a conscience, you have to you have to make him be seen as an enemy to his own people. That's the only way you can fundamentally shift him. And have it, have you? I, I thought I saw that you went there. Did you go to West Virginia? Well, we're staying in West Virginia. In fact, we've been there. Uh, excuse me. We've been in West Virginia about six times. And guess what? Every time we've gone there with black and white people and minors every time i'm sorry about my every time we've done that he's moved a little bit what i can't understand is why a lot of the other organizations that could be out there have not gone in and mobilized right imagine if if everybody had joined together and put 50 hundred thousand people in west virginia and pulled out people from west virginia and put west virginians forward i said to a group of folk that went to meet with Manchin. Take some people from West Virginia in the meeting with you. When we met with him, he wanted to meet with me alone. I said, no. We brought 12 people from West Virginia. And you could tell he was uneasy. He was Mm -hmm. uneasy because he was dealing with his own people. And we've said to the president, Mr. President, what you need to do is is let some religious leaders and some poor and impacted people come to the Oval Office from West Virginia, from Arizona, meet with you then let those poor and impacted people go to the mic and talk to the nation then mr president you get on air force one and go to arizona you're the president of every state in this country go to arizona and go to western now one thing about trump because a broke clock can be right twice a day 
don't you know if Trump wanted this and Manchin was blocking him, Trump would have gone in the state. Trump would have already been in West Virginia because one thing about Trump, he get up in their face. And, and you have to do that with somebody like Manchin and Cinema. You can't just keep begging them and allowing them to talk behind the closed door. You have to show how they're hurting their own people. So we've been there. We're going to keep going there. Um, 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 the other day, we, um, I think it was a Monday, we had a gathering in um, Washington, D.C., tried to see them. They wouldn't let us in the door. About 20 people got arrested. Some of them were from, from West Virginia. You know, we've been organizing all this summer. We were in West Virginia for a caravan over five miles long of, of, of white and black people. And they tell me that Manchin that day kept calling the AP because he didn't want it to get reported that he was hurting minors. And, and even in the paper, he can't, no, 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 I'm for living wage. I'm for any time he has to deal with his paid people, he gets real shaky. And so we, that's why, again, we got to organize this massive gathering of poor and low-wealth people July, June 18th of next year. Because until we force America to see herself, and to hear from the 140 million. And, and since the media is not going to just report it automatically, we have to make them report it by having a massive generationally transformative gathering. Not that that's the end of it. That's not what I'm talking about. We have to do it and declare that the movement is here. We're not going anywhere. And then we have to flex the power. I'll close with this. In every battleground state in this country, Poor and low wealth people now make up 40% of the electorate, 40%. In most states, if just 20% of poor and low wealth people would vote who didn't vote in the last elections, who are already eligible, they could determine who sits in the White House, in the Senate. Even in the South, Southern states are not red states. Southern states are unorganized states where large amounts of poor and low-wealth black and white people have not voted. Many times they don't vote because the politicians never talk to them. They never talk about poverty. We have to decide if we're going to wait on the politicians to talk about it or if we're going to force the nation to have to talk about it. I'm ready to do that. Yeah, you, you created a lot of, uh, and I mean, I was actually living in Greensboro. I live in Indiana now, where you're from, and, but... Um, you created a lot with Moral Mondays. I remember um, the redistricting. You got that change because of Moral Mondays. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. We we put we put um, activism in the street and and activism in the courtroom. You know, you got to have both of them. Some people say all you need to do is go to court. No, you you have to fight in the courtroom and fight in the street and fight at the ballot box. And that's what the Poor People's Campaign is committed to. We call it. We call it changing the narrative and building power. And that's why, again, the 18th is going to be a launching of when we come out of June, we're going to be traveling and organizing, mobilizing voters. Last year, we tested the system. We contacted two million voters in less than three months. Mm -hmm. we were so we're going to use that same system to go after poor and low wealth voters because that's where the power is. The power in this country lies in the number of people who just given up and what we're saying to folk there's a point you can't give up i hear some yes. people they say i'm tired i said tired how are you gonna be tired you come from a people that fought through 250 years of slavery tired how are you gonna be tired when you come from fannie lou hamer 
who after they beat her, she still stood up tired. No, 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 no. This is the moment that you don't get weary in well-doing. This is the moment that you, um, uh, you, you should intensify and embolden your agitation. This is the moment, as my as the old folks you're saying, you you press. You got to get in the press now. We and, and you don't we I don't have any reason to be tired considering what my mother, my father, and others face with tired. Like somebody said, Well, we've been to jail, but you but we go to jail and they let us out the same day. The people that went to jail before us, they got beat in the jail, hurt in the jail, tired. Nobody's tired. If anything, you should be tired of this foolishness that we have to be doing the same thing. And so this is the moment. And we have to understand we have the power, we have the resources, we just have to have the conscience, the mobilization and the consciousness to do it. And I'm glad that we're going to be, that your organization is going to hook up and um, let's, let's, let's put a half million. Of, I don't know. We get, it doesn't matter if we put 50, 50 people, but let's, let's put thousands Bishop, anything that y'all need, you got. You have access to all four million. I've I've already. So all you need to do is tell me what you need. That's what. And 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 we got it. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you go. But here's the. I was thinking about this interview, and and I thought about you as a pastor, and uh, so the song that came to my mind is. Uh, I don't feel no ways tired because you go. I've never seen anybody that go, go, go like you come too far from where I started from. Right. Nobody told me the road was going to be easy. Yeah, that's right. And, I, you know, I, t I give it to God. You know, I, I, at 30 years old, they told me I'd never walk again without a walker, probably with a wheelchair. I went into depression for a while. Uh, I, I, would, I won't tell that story here. But God sent me an, what I call an amputated angel <laughs> and um, told me the issue was to stop worrying about how I was going to walk and just make sure I was walking in the right direction. And, um, and, and I, you know, I, I, a lot of people, so, so I don't get into it, but I pain every day. Most of the time I don't talk about it. But you know what? Everybody in the Bible that God used had a disability. Moses had one. Jeremiah had one, Elisha had one, Paul had one. They had a disability or a disadvantage. And yet God used them. And so I think in life, if at the end of the day, uh, my daddy told me, you, we come into this life owing. Uh, and at the end of the day, if it can be said, we were a part of something bigger than ourselves, not what we did as an individual, but if we were a part of something bigger than ourselves, then whether we live 33 years like Jesus, whether we live, um, uh, 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 you know, well on like like um, Harry Belafonte is in his 90s, the issue is what did we contribute, you know? And uh, I think every day I get up every morning, purpose gets me up. I heard a lot of morning, but I think about the children that are coming behind us and we cannot hand them less. You know, the thing about the generation before us, they gave us more with less. They did more with less. They gave us more than what they inherited. We cannot give our children less. Amen. We've got to give them more and we got to walk by faith. And God is a mighty good God and we trust God yes, all the is. way. And um, 
we thank you. We thank you for 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 what you um doing. And you're right. No waste time. And my, and I tell folk, I got every morning. I got ten th- ten reasons to thank God. And the first reason is He woke me up this morning and started me on my Amen. way. The second reason is He woke me up this morning and started me on my way. The third reason is He woke me up this morning and started four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. He woke me up. Amen. And started me on my way. Bishop, we love you. Uh, we love you so much, and thank you so much. Um, maybe we can do this again. I know your schedule is is really busy, but we need to stay in front of the people. So, um, you know, somewhere down the line, let's let's come back and, and stay in their face. Thank you so much. We thank everybody for tuning in. Share, 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 share. You know, I always tell you, share the broadcast. We'll be rebroadcasting this over and over again. So they'll see it many times. It, right now it's on Twitter, it's on LinkedIn, and it is on Facebook. Uh, it will be on our YouTube page as well. God bless you, Bishop. Love you. June 18, 2022, D.C. All right.